Hello, hello. And welcome to another hometown daily news show. This is for November 18th, 2022. I am Mayor Watt. Let's get into the news. Hello. Like I said just a few seconds ago, I am Mayor Watt. That is hometown.com. Hometown.com is what powers this show. And I use it all day long, every day. Have for years. I'll just say years. Wasn't always open to the public, but now it is. Today's been kind of a slow news day in certain places, and some people might have other information that I don't have, but uh, if you know of something, then throw it in chat. You can even do exclamation point showbot, and that'll give you a link to hometown.showbot.tv where you can actually vote for what articles you think are interesting. But I've already selected about 10, and we'll talk about the news. How about that? You might see me looking down. It's because I've got my chat, and I've got the news articles and other things going on where I'm monitoring what's, what's happening around the world. Let's see what's going on over here. Let me pause that. So let's start out that it's the end of the week. And so the stock market is um, up 200 for the Dow Jones Industrial Average. S&P is up, well, I'll round up to 19. It's uh, S&P 500 is up 19. NASDAQ is at only up one, Uh, but Bitcoin, is still sitting around 16,600 down $67 today. What gives? Well, it's probably the knock on effect of the FTX implosion. And the person in charge of the bankruptcy is the same person that I believe the uh, unwound Enron, I think it is. And said that FTX apparently I can't, I won't quote them exactly because I, I don't recall the exact quote, but it was basically a dumpster fire. Um, but I do have something in the news that we'll talk about from FTX, but let's get going. Full on robot writing, the artificial intelligence challenge facing universities. This is in the word in tech. I had a conversation earlier today with somebody that's in cybersecurity that after, I don't know, four years of me saying, Hey, you better prep for artificial intelligence and machine learning impacting your domain. Um, I got a phone call that basically said, Hey, guess what? You were right. Didn't say it outright, but I told him that he has to buy me dinner because I have been saying this for a long time. And, um, a lot of people actually didn't really buy into that. No, that can't be. You know, cybersecurity is just way too hands-on. You have to really, it's a nuanced field. True. But the basics, every time somebody in the field discovers something, it's programmed into an artificial intelligence and a machine learning system. The expert system analyzes network activity and eventually it's going to become so sophisticated that it will know when somebody is doing something hinky and notify one person versus eight. And um, when when you look at the pricing for cybersecurity, let's just say that it it is cheaper to get a robot (laughs) 
um, pretty much at any stage than it is to have a, a human being periodically peel back the layers of the onion that is cybersecurity. So when it comes to something like writing, you can imagine it's so sophisticated that all it's doing is pumping out text. And as long as it's readable and it makes sense and it can, um, the, the sophistication of the AI and ML systems are going to become unrecognizable from regular human writing. So it says AI is becoming more sophisticated and some say capable of writing academic essays. But at this point, does the intrusion of AI constitute cheating? Yes. Yes, it does. You are claiming work for the, for your own. That was done by a bot. It is cheating. It is plagiarism. It is uh, unethical. It is something that should be reprehensible to the academic circles unless the objective of the assignment was to build an artificial intelligence that was capable of full-on robot writing that is so sophisticated that it can't be discerned from human writing. Quote, waiting in front of the lecture hall for my next class to start and beside me, two students are discussing which AI program works best for writing their essays. Is this what I'm marking? AI essays? The tweet by historian Carla Ionescu late last month captures growing unease about what artificial intelligence portends for traditional university assessment. No, no way. She tweeted. Tell me we're not there yet. Oh, we're there yet. Jeff Sparrow over at the guardian wrote this article. Um, and, um, it says here in 2012, computer theorist, Ben Gortzel, proposed what he called the robot university student test, arguing that AI capable of obtaining a degree in the same way that a human should be considered conscious. Gertzel's idea, an alternative to the more famous Turing test, might have remained a thought experiment if not for the successes of AIs employing natural language processing, or NLP, most notably GPT-3, the language model created by OpenAI Research Laboratory. Two years ago, computer scientist Nissim Dehoush, I think is their last name, published a piece demonstrating their GPT-3 could produce credible academic writing undetectable by the usual anti-plagiarism software. Eh. Not detectable by anti-plagiarism software is not the highest fruit. Uh, the bar is not particularly high for anti-plagiarism software. Anti-plagiarism software basically gets its real nuts and bolts from, or meat and potatoes. None of that sounds right, but anyway, it gets its oomph from the plurality of papers that are plugged into the system. Not in any way does it care about sentence structure or discerning that this sentence actually makes sense. It could be gibberish and it would beat anti-plagiarism software. The human, it won't. Anyway, quote, I found the output to who should Guardian Australia to be indistinguishable from an excellent undergraduate essay. 
both in terms of soundness and originality. My article, it's in brackets, was initially subtitled, the best time to act was yesterday, the second best time is now. Its purpose was to call for an urgent need to, at the very least, update our concepts of plagiarism. Yeah, I I think that there is a problem with it. And an AI that does the writing is plagiarism. It's not the human being's work, regardless of how many inputs they put into it. It isn't their academic writing. Every single word needs to be written by the author of the work, not an algorithm, not a machine learning system, not an expert system and quoted where there is something quoted needs to have a citation and other facts cited and the works referenced at the end of the paper or in the footnotes or wherever, depending on if it's MLA or APA or Chicagoan or whatever. Anyway, cognitive offloading, he explains, is when you use a tool to reduce the mental burden of a task. It can be as simple as writing something down so you don't have to try to remember it later. There have been wait, there have long been moral panics around tools for cognitive offloading from Socrates complaining about people writing to pretend they knew something to the first emergence of pocket calculators. That is not even remotely the same <laughs> as an entire bot writing papers. This is not cognitive offloading. Oh my God. All right. The occupations for which universities prepare students will, after all, soon also rely on AI and the humanities uh, particular, particularly affected. Take journalism, for instance. A 2019 survey of 71 media organizations from 32, 32 countries found AI already a significant part of journalism. Yes, but that isn't the academic environment. Deployed for news gathering, say, sourcing information or identifying trends, news production, anything from automatic fact checkers to algorithmic transformation of financial reports into articles and news distribution, personalizing websites, managing subscriptions. In all of these cases, regardless, if it's an AI that's actually writing the stuff, then it should identify. It would be unethical to claim it as one's own if it is written by an AI, regardless of the inputs. Fine. Inputs provided by this human being, but it was written by this AI. It's ridiculous any other way. Am I all for this? Absolutely. Cognitive offloading? Absolutely. Get a better calculator. Unless you are in the midst of brain surgery and even then you have an assistant that can go off and find copious amounts of information that can provide you with subject matter expertise so that you can make your next cut more accurately. But and here's a big but and in no certain terms are you supposed to write a paper using an artificial intelligence and then claim it as your own you should always be able to go off and find the answer whatever the answer may be 
that's cognitive offloading. That is going out and finding the information because you can only really store so much. For most people, it's only, I mean, it's, you can stick it in there, but your recall may suffer and you may not get that information back. It's in there, but your recall may not allow you to pull it back. And some people just have better retention and recall. It's the human condition. So I'm not against AI. I'm not against ML. I'm not against cognitive offloading. I'm not against a brain surgeon actually going out and finding material while he's still doing, Hey, I took that dude's, you know, cranial cap off and I'm looking at a brain and it doesn't look like the brain that I was looking at in the MRI. I better do a quick Google search, right? I'm sure he doesn't do Google searches, but go find perfect information. That would be awesome. We are way beyond siloing information in one's head. No longer should it really be, oh, look, uh, this mathematician is the one that figured out how to do this. So let's have a competition between this mathematician and this other mathematician so that they can get the position because there's only one position. It really shouldn't be like that. It should be, are they a great instructor? And uh, let's not get into the minutia of the academics, but let's just say that anything other than giving credit to the AI, if it's created by an AI, it's unethical and it should be deemed plagiarism. Let's move on. I can stick in this article for a long time, but follow the link, go to hometown.showbot.tv and go and look at the links and follow them. Check out the article that's on the other side and uh, come back and talk to me every day, 6 PM. I'm here right now chatting it up. Hope to see some people. I don't give much warning that I'm about to go on, on the air and I, I definitely I'm here only an hour or until I'm done with my last article. That's about to change. The next article is in uh, Smack Talk. Uh, VMware Fusion 13 adds Windows 11 virtualization for Apple Silicon Macs. Macs using VMware Fusion 13 can now run the ARM versions of Windows 11 on Apple Silicon. In a virtual machine that has support for OpenGL 4.3. Ta-da! If you want to run uh, a Windows ma virtual machine on a Mac, now you can. But it's a virtual machine. This is what I love about virtual machines in general. You can run them anywhere as long as you have either a hypervisor of some kind or a virtualization app like VMware. Um, unfortunately, VMware for the enterprise side is astronomically expensive and now going subscription. Gotta love that. Anyway, this is an article over at appleinsider.com. Wesley Hilliard and uh, VMware Fusion at 13 adds Windows 11 virtualization for Apple Silicon Macs. And they have a Fusion player, which means that Somebody can hand you a VM and you can run the VM in Fusion, play, Fusion Player. Or if you want to create it and do more powerful things and networking and stuff like that, you can use VMware Fusion Pro. Um, let's see here. Dun, dun, dun. 
And you know, I'll tell you a little more about it. So VMware Fusion Pro can create encrypted virtual machines, customize virtual networks, connect to vSphere and ESXi servers. That's the hypervisor for VMware. That's the on metal. You basically boot to that and then away you go with a bunch of virtual machines, create linked clones, create full clones and use remote vSphere host power control. VMware Fusion player lacks those features, but can still create new virtual machines and use 3D graphics. And that's kind of the main thing. VMware Fusion player will allow you to run a VM. That's pretty much it. You can create it, but it's limited. Anyway, the next article is over. Oh, you know what? Before I go that too far, uh, it's only 150 bucks. VMware Fusion Pro is 200 bucks or 99 bucks for an upgrade. And I'm not sure if any previous version will work. But I think students get it even cheaper. Look for a software store. Uh, attached to your um, your college university, and uh, you can probably get it cheaper. Uh, the next article is in uh, the Warcrafters channel. Blizzard says, "Come back in. The water's lovely." I've heard that before. Anyway, said that to lapsed WoW players. I haven't played WoW, and I don't know how long. I've actually bought each expansion, but I haven't played it because I hate the storyline. And by that, I mean, there is no storyline. If you can tell me there is a real storyline and not just a mad dash to end game and a bunch of people screaming noob. Not that anybody's ever screamed noob at me in WoW. I just don't like racing to the end game stuff. And I hated the last drop. Ugh, the last release was just horrible for me. You know, Death Knights were pretty much where I fell back in low with WoW and then Everything after that, it's just been a dumpster fire. Anyway, in the run-up to the full release of World of Warcraft Dragonflight, Blizzard is thinking about all those millions of lapsed WoW accounts. You know the kind. The guy in the office who once had a hardcore rating obsession, but nah, but says he's fine. Eyes darting side to side. Come back, says Blizzard. The water is lovely. Perhaps the biggest pull will be the chance to experience Dragonflight's new starting zone, which... Our Fraser, which is a uh, uh, over at PCGamer.com, I think is the author of this article, reckons is the best WoWs ever had. After such a strong opening, I just want to go back. No danger of his account lapsing. It's also a chance to check out WoW's huge UI overhaul. I like big UIs and I cannot lie. Never mind. Uh, though it's going to take a lot more than that for them to uninstall their add-ons. Let's go check it out. This is um, Rich Stanton's writing over at PCGamer.com. And um, this is all about trying to get people to come back to World of Warcraft Dragonflight. What do you think? This weekend, all players with inactive World of Warcraft accounts get full access to the game and their old characters without the usual subscription. Oh gosh. Uh, I haven't been paying attention to World of Warcraft. 
now I have to pay attention to World of Warcraft. Anyway, uh, they'll be able to access all their expansions, all expansions, including Shadowlands, and play the Tempest Unleashed pre-launch content for Dragonflight, which launches on November 28th. Alongside this, there's a discount on the various character housekeeping options in the game. 30% off character transfers, faction, race, name changes, and perhaps the biggest pull will be the chance to experience Dragonflight's new starting zone, which, again, Fraser reckons is the best WoW's ever had. All right. There's more over at this article, so go check it out, pcgamer.com. Blizzard says... Come back in, the water's lovely, to lapsed WoW players. The next article is sci-fi-based building meets action RPG in Cygnus Enterprises. This is in the Warcrafters channel. Uh, space has gotten a bit heavy lately. But with Battlestar Galactica, the Expanse, and recently Andor spreading harsh vibes throughout the universe, what happened to Star Trek's glass half-full vision of the future? Well, it's alive and kicking in Cygnus Enterprises, a game that imagines the future will be an all-right place to be, save for the carnivorous aliens. Dun-dun. So this article is over at PC Gamer. Let me scroll up a little bit. PC Gamer. Tom Sykes is the author. Team Myzi, Myozi, and NetEase Games genre hybrid hits pardon me hits early access on december 16th um so the game takes place on a lush alien planet one with a teeny bit of monster problem but with beautiful tropical scenery and bountiful resources so what else playing in a top-down view you'll spend half of the game constructing and placing facilities so it is a base building survival game you'll have to resource gather you'll have to kill monsters and you'll build your colony pretty neat um, the graphics look pretty good I think that I'll end up getting something like uh, I'll probably end up getting this I may not stream it because I don't have ample time um, but next year guess what that changes it does it really does so go put Cygnus Enterprises on your wish list and um, definitely go over to PC Games, PCGamer.com and um, show Tom Sykes some love by reading all of his article and uh, clicking on the video. There's a one minute video sitting there uh, that wants your attention because the creators behind this genre mind meld go by the name of Team Myozi, a new studio formed by industry veterans Ava Jobsy, or Jobs, a design lead on Total War Three Kingdoms, Alexander Pankov, designer of Far Cry 6, and Brian Cox, programmer of Age of Wonders 3. And that's a lot of action and uh, strategy experience right there, which will surely help this novel action strategy hybrid. That's the author's writing. Go check out the rest of this article, please. So now we switch a little bit um, over to the FTX thing. It's over in Hatch Ideas because it's all about business and business transformation. Uh, FTX employees were claiming expenses through online chat and random managers used emojis to approve them. Now CEO says, uh, new CEO says in bankruptcy filings. So FTX 
employees claimed expenses through chat messages. Pretty wild. Let's click the link. Matthew Lowe over at Business Insider is the author of this. And um, in his damning report, the new CEO who's walking FTX through its bankruptcy said FTX failed to keep communication, hiring, and financial records. Hey, that's pretty crypto. Let's go. What? The debtors will not approve the type of disbursement controls that I believe are appropriate for a business enterprise. Never in my career have I seen such a complete failure of the corporate controls and such a complete absence of trustworthy financial information as occurred here. So everybody has breached their fiduciary duty in the C-suite, which basically penetrates the veil. I'm pretty sure that they're going to be coming after the C-suite for everything involving FTX if they can. Um, Not sure how many people are running for the hills. We'll see what the litigation ends up being Ray slammed Bankman Freed in particular saying that the exchange's co-founder continues to make erratic and misleading public statements. He highlighted a Vox report that alleged Bankman Freed sent a DM to reporter Kelsey Piper saying F regulators and that they make everything worse. Yeah, you know, all of those people that have been Wondering where their money is. The reason why we have regulation is to protect them from people in privileged positions stealing from them, abusing the privilege, and not exhibiting fiduciary duty. That is why we have rules and regulation. So before FTX's blow up rival crypto exchange Binance was set to acquire them, they looked at the books and said, huh, no way in hell are we touching this dumpster fire. FTX and Bangman Freed did not immediately respond to insiders' requests for comment. This dude. Man. From hero to zero. But nobody ever complains when everything is going, you know, irrationally positive. But the moment things start hitting the skids, everybody loses their mind and starts laying blame. But if everybody were moderately growing, then it would be a moderate decline because there would be checks and balances, enough transparency for you to feel safe. All of these people did not pay attention to what was going on. And there wasn't enough information that was provided so that they could feel safe. None of them should have felt safe. That's why there's regulation. That's why there's required filings. That's why there's external auditors. And external auditors are required in regulated sectors. But crypto apparently is, like I said, the dumpster fire of technology. And regulation is coming for you. The next article is in the word in tech remote controlled microscopes bring complex biology education to students worldwide in many communities around the world students ability to and enthusiasm to pursue stem or even steam uh, steam has the art component in science technology engineering and math um, but a lot of places poo-poo the whole idea of adding that art thing in there. Oh, you can't have art in a solid tech domain like science, technology, engineering, and math because none of that is in art. Right? Right? 
I could be wrong. Anyway, STEM fields in their high school and college careers is limited by a lack of resources that prevent them from accessing complex project-based curriculum like their peers. The COVID-19 pandemic has exacerbated this existing educational inequality, requiring new solutions to democratize access to this field. Actually, COVID-19 may have exacerbated it, but not so much in the sense that everybody should be talking about. Okay, so everybody is saying that, and not everybody, a lot of people are saying that it exacerbated existing educational inequalities. Um, but there are, it highlighted the fact that we had our priorities wrong. The technology divide is real. Now, schools can provide laptops, but they're providing Chromebooks. Then when they transition from high school to college, they have no idea that they were hobbled with Chromebooks. You can't do everything on a Chromebook. So when they transition over to college and suddenly they have a whole bunch of new requirements, um, it, and it all depends on the school district that they're in. Um, but the schools really should, you know, where people sit there and say taxes suck and it's a, a blah, blah, blah. You know, uh, the, the people that are anti-tax are the people that are wondering why the population isn't educated. Well, it's because people can't afford to spend a thousand dollars on a laptop. So they end up being told that Chromebooks are fine. I don't believe Chromebooks are fine. Not for a heartbeat. Maybe once they are just doing work on their own. Yeah, sure. But academic requirements go way beyond a Chromebook. Um, maybe the high school system is hobbling itself so that it fits in that box. But with more taxes paying into the academic system, you'd be able to get better quality equipment. You'd be able to pay the uh, faculty, you would be able to support the infrastructure so that there is no technology divide. You could loan out laptops with greater ability, real laptops. So it didn't really exacerbate existing educational inequalities because they're not educational inequalities. They're fiscal, they're, they're financial inequalities. It has nothing to do. Education is limited by the amount of resources that are provided by the state. And the, the citizens have to pay on top of that. And in many cases, the teachers are paying on top. Yeah, my voice just cracked. Um, the teachers are paying to fill the gap and they're requesting supplies and whatnot and money and, and more from the parents of the students. Hey, we need this because we have a shortage. Pay your taxes, folks. That's you want a better educated populace that finds options and doesn't turn to criminal activity and doesn't turn to lashing out because they have no other options. A lot of people don't even have coping skills taught to them by their parents or the school system or society. And you end up with criminal activity. And this is all, this should not be news to people. Well, 
Again, associative thinking links one thing to another, to another, to another, and it's all a logical ro row of processes. And it's still one end is connected to the other. Remote controlled microscopes can allow someone to learn in a remote location. All they need is access to it, right? And that can change someone's world. Go visit a classroom where you have an engaged teacher or professor and uh, you will see that just driving the idea of something like this into their worldview, just saying, hey, you can use a microscope or view a microscope from around the world. By the way, I actually have a channel that's part of uh, Ometown, actually the parent company of it. Um, wherein the intent is to stream a 24 hour a day, seven day a week um, microscope. Right now I have a sand table that's running 24 hours a day, seven days a week um, over at Waffleton Adventure Company here on Twitch. There's a longer story there, a whole plot line that <laughs> is forming. But anyway, it's the same exact thing, right? So in many communities around the world, students' ability and enthusiasm to pursue STEM fields in their high school and careers are limited by a lack of resources that prevent them from accessing complex project-based curriculum like their peers. So a new study in the journal Halion details this novel and scalable framework for bringing project-based STEM education to students who otherwise would not have access. UC Santa Cruz researchers have developed a method for using remote-controlled internet-connected microscopes to enable students anywhere in the world to participate in designing and carrying out biology experiments. And somebody has to be there to put stuff on the platen, but other than that, oh, and you have to worry about the heat. Um, depending on what it is, if it's an LED-lit uh, microscope. Yeah, this is interesting what I'm looking at. Um, really cool. These are the, there's a picture here of a little high school students on a visit to the live cell biotechnology discovery lab. Uh, I would assume at UC Santa Cruz. So it says here, taking an internet connected camera and putting it in the view piece of a microscope is something that a lot of labs could do, said Pierre Bowden a computer engineering PhD student at the Baskin School of Engineering and first author on the paper. But laying out the framework in this paper, the idea was to create a roadmap so any lab that feels some kind of mission or desire to create educational resources for their community or others may be able to set up a similar kind of experiment allowing this concept to spread. In fact, I have done this. I set it up and I streamed it, um, but the heat from the light that um, provides the, the backlighting for the um, for the microscope basically causes the experiment to heat up. It doesn't always have a good ending. Um, in fact, that microscope and its internet connected camera um, is sitting in the closet that is right there. Anyway, maybe I'll get that set up and uh, I'll connect it to one of my other systems here. 
<coughs> pardon me, here in hometown. Um, so that's pretty cool. Tissue culture, culture experiments are typically unheard of in high schools and even the first few years of college. And yet in user studies run this uh, for this research, underserved high school students at Alyssal High School in the rural Salinas Valley near Santa Cruz were able to do these experiments. Well, they actually had physical access to it, too. Yeah, at some point, a human has to be involved in putting the material in the scope. So uh, I'll do some more research on this and maybe we can talk about it some more in the future. Um, the next article is in the word in tech. Honeybees prosper with quality, not quantity, of food in novel laboratory setup. Honeybee workers collect pollen and nectar from a variety of flowering plants to use as a food source. Honeybees typically forage from up to one to two miles away from the hive, though sometimes they can travel further, including up to 10 miles away. I think that's the number that I've heard, 10 miles away. However, much of the modern landscape consists of agricultural fields, which limits the foraging options for honeybees in these areas. So they set up a novel lab experiment by Shelby Lawson, University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Um, honeybee workers collect pollen and nectar from a variety of flowering plants to use as a food source. Furthermore, when crops decline at summer's end, honeybee populations in corn slash soy heavy areas. So a lot of corn and soy are grown together um, because one is more productive. It's worth more um, at different times of the year than corn. Um, and I think the soy and corn duality help each other in the soil. Heavy, anyway, corn soy heavy areas experience massive losses, posing the question of how agricultural landscapes impact the type of food the honeys bring in. Honey bees, honeys. <laughs> honey bees bring in, and if the food then affects the queen's production of eggs. Adam Dolezal, uh, an assistant professor of etymology, entomology, etymology is the study of words, entomology and the history. Um, and entomology as insects at University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign and Ashley St. Clair, which is, that is like uh, a spy novel name if I ever heard one. Um, a postdoctoral researcher in Dolezal's lab explored these questions in a new paper published in Frontiers in Sustainable Food Systems. I think hydroponics is the next frontier in sustainable food systems <clears throat> basically each little city should set up hydroponic systems that are um, capable of producing what the population needs in a more secure environment away from uh, predators and other things that might kill the crop and it's more manageable you can always get to it um, it's processed cleaner. Anyway, um, it's very complicated in the field to tease apart these differences. I mean, it could be corn, pesticides, the randomness in the colonies. It could be all kinds of interactions, Saint, said St. Clair. Uh, we wanted to see if we could replicate those findings in the lab because it would mean that pollen nutrition was actually an indicator of that reduced queen egg laying we see in August and not some other environmental factor. 
And that was the first part of the study. And for the second part of the study, the researchers used small microcolony honeybee boxes to test the uh, question of nutritional impacts on egg laying in a controlled laboratory setting. So it was more about the egg laying than all the rest of it. So pretty neat. So in line with what was found in the field, queens laid more eggs under the prairie diet compared to those under the crop or primrose diet. The results from both the field and the lab components of the study suggest that honeybee colonies do better when given a diverse diet, as would be found in a field of prairie flowers compared to a less diverse diet of crops. Same thing with humans. The broader our gut biome is, the better off we seem to be. The next article is over in the Law Nerd channel. Law schools dropping out of U.S. news ranking like it's a crypto exchange. I love above the law writing. That's where this is sourced from. Joe Patrice uh, writes, Law schools dropping out of U.S. news ranking like it's a crypto exchange. Everyone, everyone wants out these days. Um, Georgetown's statement echoed the concerns raised by other schools. Since our founding, public service has been at the heart of Georgetown Law's mission. We've strived to live by the Jesuit motto of people for others, educating lawyers, legal scholars, and citizens committed to the struggle for justice, protecting the rights of the most vulnerable among us. As we have pursued these goals, we have also indicated, uh, uh, dedicated ourselves to providing the resources needed for the most promising students to attend the law school, regardless of their means. For decades, the U.S. News and World Report rankings have used a scoring system that reflects a different set of priorities. Most significantly, the U.S. News scoring system discourages schools from devoting resources to helping students pursue careers in public interest, and it discourages schools from devoting resources to helping students of limited means undertake a legal education. And this is actually uh, something that has been echoed, uh, like it says in the article, by other schools. Essentially, um, apparently, what some people believe is that um, US News would say, would, would take into account the exclusivity of the school and um, says here for decades, quote, uh, these schools couldn't have cared less about the scoring system. Now they're claiming the rankings penalize schools for helping students get out into uh, public interest, which seems suspect. It's not like U.S. News dings public interest jobs. They count for uh, U.S. News uh, just as much as any other legal gig. What bugs the schools is that USNWR doesn't count school-funded public interest jobs, which it shouldn't. If schools could put students on the payroll to juice employment statistics, then schools would immediately shell out to get a 100% employment rate and then drop the grad as soon as the 10-month reporting period ends. Well, those summer gigs don't pay well. So is it just a misperception? There's a lot more to this. The more compelling argument for the school is that the rankings encourage higher tuition by considering per student spending and create perver uh, sorry, perverse incentives by weighting GPA and LSAT inputs 
rather than professional inputs. And the author says, alas, that doesn't sound as noble as pretending the law school are on the cusp of solving the access to justice gap if it weren't for those meddling kids over at U.S. News. Yeah, I don't think that this is as simple as what the schools are saying, but it's pithy to say we blame U.S. News ranking system. So we'll see what happens. Um, ultimately, are people choosing their school based on the U.S. News and World Report school rankings? I don't know. Let's move on to the next article. The guy who took Enron through bankruptcy is now CEO of FTX and has never seen such a complete failure. Uh, this was aggregated from PCGamer.com. That's why it's in Warcrafters, a channel about first-person uh, shooters and real-time sims and role-playing games and gaming discussion and streamcasts and live plays and everything else that I can stuff into Warcrafters. The crypto exchange FTX collapsed into bankruptcy last week after a liquidity crisis exposed a financial black hole that no one knows yet the full extent of. As the recriminations begin in the crypto world, the man who's been charged with overseeing FTX's bankruptcy and working out just what this company has been up to reckons this is even worse than Enron. Yeah, I was around in the Enron days, folks. Enron was bad. Rich, Rich Stanton is the author of this article. The company was apparently buying holiday homes in the Bahamas for execs. If you want to end up in jail, pierce your fiduciary veil. So the C-suite has a fiduciary duty to uh, mitigate risk and not expose the company uh, to <laughs> all kinds of legal action. And one of the fastest way to just come out swinging for litigation is commingle your funds and treat it as if it is just a stopping point for you to acquire your own personal goods and services and whatnot. Um, and, uh, that's what it seems to be doing. Um, people do this all over the place and then they get caught and they end up in jail and I'm expecting people to end up in jail. The crypto exchange FTX collapsed into bankruptcy. So somebody has to audit every single thing to find out what every single asset is worth, which means everybody in the C-suite is about to get exposed. Like, well, I'm not going to say what, so it says here, let's put this into context. That's what the author is saying. The Enron scandal was in 2001, the largest bankruptcy in us history. It remains to this day the emblematic corporate scandal, the ultimate example of what can happen when regulators are asleep at the wheel. So when the guy who took charge of restructuring Enron is uh, blanching at the state of FTX, you know this is incredible. So they started out saying that there would be a hundred um, or a thousand and then a hundred thousand creditors and now there's a million creditors that are supposedly chomping at the bit this is an estimate of what's going to happen in the 
bankruptcy process. Let me pause this. It says, going hand in hand with this, Ray notes the absence of lasting records of decision making and that former CEO Sam Bankman Fried often communicated by using applications that were set to auto delete after a short period of time and encouraged employees to do the same. Tell me you're up to no good without telling me you're up to no good. Exactly. This shouldn't have been done in a business. Document retention policies. Again, we have rules and regulations. Apparently, this does not matter. Because the profits were there and nobody was peeling back the layers of the onion because the profits were there. The moment the shit hit the fan, suddenly everybody starts blaming everybody else. But nobody was blaming anybody when there was irrational returns on your investments. Bitcoin is not inherently worth anything, folks. Like I say to people, if I hand you a Bitcoin, the first thing you do is go look at what the value of the Bitcoin is. And it's not in Bitcoin. It's in US dollars. If I hand you 20 bucks, you know inherently what it's worth. 20 bucks. Why? Because it's pegged to the GDP. It's, it's pegged to the society in which it exists and is accepted as value. Crypto is just first mover fear of missing out. I hope that this investment in 4090s is going to pay off. Har har. If you bought in at $30,000 of Bitcoin, you're screwed. I hope you're playing the long game because it's going to be a while. I do not think that crypto is going to come back to $30,000. I don't think it's going to hit 25 and I'd say nine years. You got nine years before it comes back. Let's see if I'm right. You know, it's in November 2022. Anyway. No, Bankman Freed. The regulators are not going to make everything worse because you made it the worst possible thing. And they're going to be coming for you and all of the executives and anybody else that had knock on effect of this uh, profiting from this. I mean, uh, this is like 2000 all over again. Um, just, uh, it's amazing. It's amazing. Anyway, this next article I clicked on because I actually saw a news report about this. Um, that streamed to what amounts to TV today. Um, this is in the Law Nerd channel, and it's from AboveTheLaw.com. A judge didn't believe lawyer had a stroke, but he did because no one fakes a stroke. So Joe Patrice over at Above the Law wrote this article, and it says the most obvious follow-up. So apparently what happened was this attorney had a stroke, notified the court via email because you don't call anybody anymore. You can't get a hold of a human being and was held in contempt and reprimanded publicly because it was streaming online um, and told the client that the attorney um, failed that client <laughs> anyway 
Um, the client informed the court that he'd suffered a stroke, but the judge wasn't buying it and held him in contempt in, a, in absentia and pledged to report him to the state bar. The whole affair was captured by the media, camped in the courtroom for the high-profile high trial. Spoiler alert, he had a stroke. Because of course he did. No one fakes a stroke. There only are... Uh, there, uh, sorry, not only are there a million more readily available excuses in the world, but it would uh, commit the attorney to an unnecessarily complicated endgame of having to act out lingering symptoms for the rest of the trial, and it wouldn't make any sense. Anyway, I watched this report, probably the exact same one. Um, quote, I was astonished. I couldn't believe it. Tucker said she kind of made me look real bad on TV. I think that actually... Uh, he should file a complaint against her um, for what she did. Zero due diligence on her part, at least in my observation. We don't know what they actually did. Where is the email? If there was a problem with the email, then maybe there's a problem with the system. So... Uh, so the writer here says, no, he, uh, in fairness, she didn't, she made herself look real bad on TV, but that's not true at the time she ruined his reputation really. Um, and they have to educate the world because it's really tough to claw back the impression. Nobody, every, everybody who listened to it immediately has a perception and then has to be educated. Oh, it's not, isn't that the attorney that lied about having a stroke? Anyway, everyone's first impression of that rant was, wait, why wouldn't you believe he had a stroke? More to the point, as a retired judge following the story noted, why not say, I really hope he's all right. If we discover counsel did not have a stroke or some other serious medical issue, I'd be inclined to hold him in contempt for telling such a lie. And that's my, that is exactly what I said when I uh, watched this news story that why wouldn't you just do some due diligence, you know, immediately I in the courtroom, I would call, <laughs> I would call the, uh, the law office and go, where the hell is this attorney there? They have, emotion before the court you you need to get your butt out here get a stand-in maybe i don't know um somebody that's versed in the court in, in the trial it can't be only one person really that has any idea where the attorney is it says anyway or maybe the judge just wants out of this case because that's most certainly where this is heading tucker told the press that he may file a motion to remove malone from the case I think that they should be removed from the bench for crying out loud. They read the personal riot act and impugned their integrity nationwide online. While he's at it, he might want to consider a defamation claim. Indeed, judges are generally immune from defamation, but that privilege assumes the judge is acting diligently and impartially. Yeah, not just diligently performing some due diligence. This isn't diligently at all. I would be, I would be livid, but you know what? The legal system is quite fascinating. An apology from a judge is different than an apology from an attorney. Well, at any rate, uh, that is today's hometown daily news show. Again, I am Mayor Watt and that is hometown.com. And, uh, 
come on back tomorrow, 6 p.m. Eastern. I will be here uh, streaming the hometown daily news show. And um, maybe this weekend I'll be playing WoW for a little bit because I still dig WoW. I love it. It's graphics. And I really do like do, creating characters and, and, and going out adventuring. And it's free this weekend. So go check it out. Okay, that's it. Bye-bye. Thank you.